Blog Talk Radio.
We'd like to welcome our political analysts and panelists um, as we bring on Brother Anthony. And I'd like to welcome you, Brother Anthony, to Africa on the Move. And I would like to say a Happy New Year to you, our listening audience, and all of our supporters as well. Nice being back. Welcome, Brother Anthony, to Africa on the Move. Uh, thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to the fellow panelists and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Our objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Fine, Brother Anthony. We have Brother Haki. Happy New Year to you also, Brother Haki, and welcome to Africa on the Moon. Happy New Year, Brother Africa. Uh, good to see you back. My name is Haiki Kamata Mishoki, Colonel with African Awareness and my business institution building. Before I even stress the importance of institutions, one of the things I just want to point out, point out to the listening audience, uh, recently there was an article that came out about the Integrity Initiative, and uh, this was a group that was formed by the Institute of Statecraft in the U.K. This institution was hacked, and the, what was revealed was that this is a secret organization primarily uh, dealing with propaganda. Uh, not just propaganda in the U.K., but propaganda throughout the Western world. It's very, very interesting because one of the things they wanted to do is counter any kind of information coming out of Russia. And the whole point is that, you know, Russia is perceived as a threat. But the reality is, I mean, look at Russia in terms of, you know, his bureaucracy. Russia is pretty much similar to the way, you know, most Western nations operate. In fact, uh, during the time of Gorbachev and Yeltsin, during Perestroika and Glasnost, um, uh, they adopted many Western traditions in terms of how this government should be organized. So to paint Russia as the enemy, as the adversary, is, is sort of disingenuous. But but we have to keep in mind that the reason why they picked Russia is because historically Russia has always been sort of a, uh, the, a boogie, a, a, the boogeyman. And so therefore people are comfortable with, you know, scapegoating Russia. And so those individuals in the uh, Integrity Initiative understand that reality. And so what they've done is they got together, you know, with uh, various uh, institutions uh, throughout the Western world, including academics, technical corporations, corporations, the wealthy, uh, TV, social media, and to format, you know, uh, these lies. In other words, when they create these lies, they want to make sure all these institutions are consistent with the lie. In fact, what you want to do is whitewash the, the populace. So what is interesting is that they also got Facebook down with this uh, down with this uh, uh, in, uh, initiative. And the whole point is that you know Facebook is 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 very popular among young people. And so um, unfortunately, a lot of the information that they receive on Facebook is in, you know is not necessarily accurate information, but information geared toward deceiving people in terms of what's really going on in the world. So clearly, uh, this this whole question in terms of this integrative initiative, you know, has a a a a a, 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 a has the potential to do very very bad things in terms of how people think, and as a consequence, has has in position to actually uh, facilitate a situation where people actually believe that the problems that they they're confronted with uh, are, is simply in their mind. So this is all the propaganda, and this is precisely why you have to have institutions in terms of combating this mindset. Because without the institutions to clarify a lot of information that's coming out, then people simply believe it to be factual. In fact, it's not factual. In fact, it's all manufactured for specific intent. 
And so, therefore, we need institutions to combating that. And on saying that, Brother Africa, again, I want to thank you for having me on. All right, thank you, Brother Haki. Father Brother Haki, we would like to welcome Brother Moses. Happy New Year to you, Brother Moses, and welcome to Africa on the Moon. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and Happy New Year to all, all within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during the government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, the authenticity of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And thank you once again for allowing me to be on the show. Thank you, Brother Moses. And Father Brother Moses, we bring in Brother Jabari. Welcome to Africa on the move, and Happy New Year to you as well. Yes, Happy New Year to you and the listening audience. Brother Jabari, resident researcher, looking forward to another insightful program as you with honor and privilege to be a part of it. Thank you. Okay, to the listening audience who are listening to this program, we'd like to involve you as well into our program, and you can do this in a few minutes. Uh, when we go to our segment, which is coming up now, what's going on in your world and the community? If you have anything going on in your world and your community, we would like for you to use this particular segment to share that with our listening audience. After that segment, we'll talk about our theme and follow that theme. We hope to have a third part of this program where we'll do an update on a report from Cuba. So that's the line of the order of our program today. So what we're going to do right now, we're going to go to our segment. Our segment, What's Going On in Your World Community. And before we come to our panelists, panelists, I want you all to allow me the opportunity to bring in this next um, guest today. It's Sister Celine from Cameroon. She was on earlier. And since our theme is a review of the past, present, future, we'd like to offer her an opportunity again to give us an update on critical matters, the issues that's going on in Cameroon. So right now, we're going to bring in our Sister Celine from Cameroon. Sister Celine, can you hear us? Sister Celine, welcome to Afghanistan. Oh, oh, my brother, good. Uh, thank you, people, very much. Happy New Year to Brother William, Moses, and all the rest. I'm so happy to hear your voices. So I'm not seeing you people. Oh, my name is Naya Lekuze Selim from uh, Cameroon. We are still in the struggle, in African struggle. I have been in the struggle uh, with the women folk and the youth oh, since 1985. It's not an easy task, but God is seeing me through, and we are still there in the struggle. Oh, it's not easy with us this way because of the crisis in Cameroon. Our schools are being burned, people are dying, uh, army are dying, children are dying, people are being kidnapped for ransom. It's not easy, but God is seeing us through. And we believe that with prayers, with your prayers, with our prayers, God is going to see us through. God is going to change the situation that we are inside. So it's not easy. Women cannot work their farms. Because of uh, this uh, climate change, so many things are happening. Now like this, I'm talking, I'm not even wearing anything because places are too hot for us. 
We have never experienced this type of heat. Places are hot. The change of climate is really affecting us this way. So it's not life is not easy. But we believe that the future is bright. And there will be changes. The future will change. As we continue to struggle for Africa and our loved ones. Thank you people very much for us in Cameroon. Thank you for your care and for the good thoughts that you have for us. We believe that as we fight together, God will see us through. Thank you, people, for always thinking about Africa. I'm always so excited when I think of you people. When I think of when we had uh, our African Liberation Party meeting in D.C., I, I saw all that you are putting in place, all that you are doing for our African people, and I'm so excited about you people. I always put you people in my mind. You will never come out of my mind. I always think of you people, for what you are doing over there for us. God bless you people so much. Thank you. Celine, can you just briefly talk a little bit about the internal division that's going on in your country and how can people get in touch with your organization and how can they support the needs that you have right now, you and your people? You and our people, our brothers and sisters. Can you talk a little bit about the internal issues that are going on and how can at least audience support your organization and the people there? Oh, yes. What is going on is that, you know, I live in the remote area, in the villages, where some people cannot afford even $1 a week. Some women cannot afford a dollar a week. I am not exaggerating. I'm a Christian, and what I'm saying is what is going on. Because the reason being that we don't have good roads, even if you plant your food, you will not have a market to sell because there are no good roads. Now, we are entering second-generation agriculture, which means that, which means that women have to produce, then they have to process so that they can look for further markets. Now, when you produce and then you process, you add the value to what you have produced. Secondly, when you have processed, the volume becomes small that you'll be able to carry out of the place. But they are not able to afford the machines that they can do the processing. We have to process. We, can, we have to teach them how to process how to package, to do the packaging, and also how to do uh, storage facilities. Because if you don't know how to store, sometimes they produce in bulk, and then they cannot store, and the things get bad. But if we are able to learn how to store, we learn also how to package, they will look for good markets, markets that they can sell at least expensive for them. It will liberate them from poverty. It will help them so much. Most of the children are being sponsored by women, but the women do not have enough money. They don't have enough to do that type of job. Our association is also struggling to, for the education of the girl child. We struggle and send children, girl children to school. Let me say, like the orphans, some are needy children that their mothers are very poor and their fathers are poor. They cannot afford. We struggle to send such children to school. 
I in person, I have three that I'm taking care of in my house. Three needy children. My last born has his uh, first degree. I don't have little children, but I continue sponsoring the poor children. It's not easy with us, but I believe that the future is bright, that God is going to do something. God will one day answer our prayers and wipe away our tears. We have some that have finished school, that have finished their college, secondary school. They cannot go to college because there's no money for us to sponsor them. So that's my body. That's my struggle. That's what I've been doing since I got married in 1970. I and my husband have always been taking care of other people's children. And now it's not even easy for me because my husband is on retirement and his money is not coming out. So things are very difficult. But since it is a burden that God gave us, we are still struggling. And that's why you can see us with three children, three needy children in our house to take care. Even with this, with this crisis, it's not easy to, take, to feed the children. But we are struggling, and God is helping us to see us through. God is faithful, and we believe that he will do something for us. We believe that the future of Africa is bright, no matter what is going on. We believe that when something starts, there is an end. Something can never stand and start and remain like that. There will be an end, and things will move well. Thank you, people. Is I sent some of the pictures uh, to Brother Babusi in D.C. that we had a, a, a workshop two weeks ago for our association that we are trying to teach the women on the climate change, um, the climate change and smart agriculture, how they can study the, the climate and see what, how they can plant. Because it's not easy... We don't. We, we can't read the weather. We can't know what is happening. Sometimes you see small rain. You plant. Sun will come and burn everything. Now you have wasted money in buying the, the seeds, and then you have spent labor. You have labor yourself in vain. We do manual labor. We don't have machines that we work on the farm. We do but manual labor. So women are really suffering in Cameroon as far as. This climate change is concerned. So we had a seminar last week. We called some experts so that two weeks ago so that they can train the women on the climate change. And we are still praying that if we have more, we have funds, we have more funds, we carry such activities in different, different villages so that we can continue training the women on the climate change. Thank you so much for listening. I think if there's another and question, then I will answer. <laughs> and quickly, Celine, mm-hmm. then we will move forward to other panelists. How can people get in contact with you and your organization for those who may like to find out more about Cameroon and how they can support you? Is there an email, phone number, or something they can identify um, identify how to contact you? Yes, my email uh, number is... Uh, Naya Selid at yahoo.co.uk Naya Selid at yahoo.co.uk Then my phone number is 011 
Two That's my phone number. I don't know. Can okay. I repeat it again? Or have you got it? Yet? I think we got it, Sister Celine. And for anybody who want no information, they always can reach out to Africa on the move to at Gmail, and we will connect you with Sister Celine and the struggle that's going on in Cameroon. Sister Celine, we thank you for giving us an update on what's going on in your world and the community. And uh, we will stay in touch. We thank you. Okay, let's move on. Brother Anthony, what's going on in your world and your community? Thank you. Okay, uh, a couple of things. Um, In Venezuela, uh, President Nicolas Maduro was inaugurated for a second term last week. Um, I I've seen Reese read some to the fact that there might have been a possible coup attempt during that during that time period, but uh, but uh, but uh, overall uh, everything went smoothly as far as the inauguration was concerned, and he was inaugurated for a second term, and um, you know, and there was and the, and and he got support uh, from through throughout Africa. Uh, Asia and uh, and the Caribbean, uh, in spite of pressures being put on the U.S. to try to you know topple uh, uh, you know the Venezuelan government. Uh, let's see uh, locally. Uh, let's see uh, the Birmingham Civil Rights uh, Leadership Council uh, rescinded uh, a ceremony. In which they were going to give um, Angela Davis an award for her civil rights work, and they rescinded that under pressure from Zionist forces because of uh, Angela Davis's support of the Palestinian struggle and the boycott, divest, and sanctions uh, movement. And uh, this is an, uh, another case where. Um, where, 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 where uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, some people that, that that don't care, that don't really care about the masses of suffering Africans are trying, uh, you know, to pick our leadership. Uh, also, uh, let's see the uh, the the federal the partial federal government shutdown is having uh, is having a rippling effect on the African community. Um, uh, people might, uh, as people might be aware, there is a significant segment of our community that is employed in rank and file fit positions inside the federal government, uh, particularly in the East Coast, and uh, and uh, because they're not getting uh, that they're not able, they're not getting paid. Uh, you know, they're not able to meet, uh, you know, their needs for food, clothing, and shelter. And it's a serious struggle for them. Uh, in the meantime, the executive branch is still getting paid. As a matter of fact, I think they got raises 
at the beginning of this year. So. Okay, we thank you, Brother Anthony, in terms of what's going to share with us, what's going on in your world community. And then we'll go to Brother Haki. Brother Haki, what's going on in your world in the community? Yeah, I just I just want to sing the praises of uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the work that she's doing. What I find very interesting, Brother Africa, is that there's been a regular resentment uh, among, of course, I understand the Republican resentment. What I can't understand is Democratic resentment toward the young lady. Uh, the young sister advocated that she talked about the fact that she felt like in terms of revitalizing the economy, that a 65% tax on incomes over $10 million a year would achieve that effect. And that makes a lot of sense because when you look at it historically in terms of tax breaks, uh, one of the things you're very clear on, the more taxes you get, you give, uh, more tax breaks that you give, the more you undermine the economy. But uh, when you when you deny people those tax breaks, you have more money for the economy, more money in terms of investment infrastructure and doing those kind of things people need in terms of, you know, their day-to-day existence in the society. Uh, one of the things, when we go back to the, to the 30s and we look at the FDR, uh, one of the things that he did was he recently, uh, you know, because of because of the movements, socialist and communist movements in the United States, he called the corporate heads together to say, listen, we need to do something in terms of ensuring, you know, uh, that these people get some of their grievances because we don't. We have a revolution on their hand. Well, the corporations agree that something has to happen, so they agreed to a tax rate of 70%. And as a result of that 70% uh, um, tax increase, what happened was that Social Security was initiated, which we enjoy today. Unemployment insurance, which we enjoy today, employing over 15 million people in addition to conservation camps, employing additional people. So none of that would have been, would have been possible without the tax increases that was levied on the very, very wealthy. Uh, also, John F. Kennedy also raised taxes to the tune of 60% on the wealthy uh, back in the 60s. And as a consequence, he's able to improve the infrastructure in America to ensure the kids have access to higher education, quality schools, those kind of things that people need in terms of, you know, uh, their livelihoods. Uh, also, Ronald Reagan, the, 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 the prince of conservatism, uh, one of the things that he discovered in his first year, given all those tax breaks, uh, he found out the economy suffered. As a result, what happened in the second year, he removed those tax loopholes. In, 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 in other words, what he did was impose a tax increase. And so what happened is in 1982, he passed the Tax Equity and Fiscal Responsibility Act. As a consequence, you raise taxes by 1% of a GDP, or we're talking about in today's dollars, $150, the equivalent of $150, $150 billion today. So clearly, you know, uh, getting rid of these tax breaks for the wealthy is the best thing if you're going to revitalize the economy. So the mere fact that they're attacking uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez speaks values in terms of her being on the right road. And I certainly hope, you know, in addition to her and the other, those young ladies, uh, Rashida Talib and rest of those young ladies who will be joining, you know, the Congress, I certainly hope they stand, you know, stand strong, continue to do what what the people demand, and uh, you know we support them wholeheartedly. And I just wanted, I just wanted to share that. Okay, thank you, Brother Haki, uh, explaining what's going on in your world and the community. And now we come to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and the community? Well, um, people have covered a lot of ground. Uh, I think the 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 Black Panther Memorial Boo Jamal was granted a right of appeal. I think that's significant. Um, um, we um, we have to uh, 
stay vigilant and uh, support the the rights of political prisoners, and uh, this is uh, very important. I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave it right there. Thank you. I was recently reading an article entitled Out of Prison, Out of Jobs, Unemployment and Formerly Incarcerated. And in this particular article, it was talking about how those who are released from the penal system have a rate of unemployment around five times that of the general public. And they're saying something like 27% of those that were formerly in the penal system are unemployed. Now, when you read statistics like this, and this is speaking from the U.S. context, you got to ask the question, what is the measure that they use to um, rate the way it treats its citizens? Because clearly there's some discrepancies in regards to um, employment barriers that are systemic. And in regards to those groups that were most victimized by being in the penal system, we found that the greatest number of unemployed were black women. So anytime you hear these kind of numbers and you see these kind of statistics, it really lets you know that there's games being played and how incarceration is big business because they're trying to keep certain segments of society permanently lower class. It's not about creating equal opportunities for everybody despite the immense resources that are available. <laughs> Okay. Well, Africa, let me weigh let me let me weigh in something in terms of um, Mumia Abu Jamal. Uh, one mm-hmm. of the things that you know those of us who've been following the case of Mumia Abu Jamal know his innocence, and the question is, you know, uh, how is it that the leading judge, Judge Zabo, uh, could make a statement that we're going to we're going to I'm going to deal with this nigger? How can he make such a statement and still be you know a, a representative of the judicial branch? The mere fact that he can say those kind of things speaks violence in terms of the kind of racism that's uh, prevalent throughout the judicial system. And so this is this, this is why Jamil Abu Jamal, I mean Jamil, I mean excuse me, Jamil Abu Jamal finds himself incarcerated. Uh, you know, here recently they discovered there were like six boxes of information pertaining to his case, in which the, the prosecutor had alleged it didn't exist. Well, when the judge was adamant that the, the documentation be created. Well, you know what? They found it in the closet in the DA's office. So clearly, this this whole desire to deny him a, 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 equal, a fair trial uh, is very very clear. And so perhaps with that information, then you know he'll be exonerated and he'll be free. Uh, but of course, it doesn't undermine, it doesn't diminish when I order the kind of damage that he endured in terms of you know thirty years, thirty plus years in prison for something that you didn't do. But it speaks values in terms of, you know, uh, the kind of uh, 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 negativism toward people, you know, of a particular particular ethnicity or particular social strata in the society. So when Brother Jabari talks about the fact that, uh, you know, when you when you look at um, the high incarceration rate and you look at it in terms of these gains being perpetuated to ensure that certain populations uh, remain captive, you know, to the to, to the uh, to the massive uh, incarceration system. And it speaks values in terms, you know, just how unwanted uh, some people are. And it seems to me that we have to stop thinking about people in the context of them and start talking about, talk about the problem in the context of us. Because even though, you know, you know, we may not be incarcerated in our lifetime, there is an increasing possibility as the society continues to deteriorate that more and more of us are going to find ourselves in concentration camps. And so when we talk about the National Defense Organization Act, we talk about internment of Americans, then we got to understand 
And they're not just talking about, you know, quote-unquote criminals, but they're talking about law-abiding people being in turn simply because of not what they do, because of what they think. And so people got to understand the inherent danger in terms of this. Hello? I think we lost Brother Haki, but we'll continue the discussion until he, until he comes back. You know, I thought that would be interesting, too, in terms of the Mumian case. I think Haki highlights some of, some of the key areas in which I was going to raise. But I also wonder, in terms of just this whole process of where you can openly say that, you know, you have a prosecutor, prosecutor who consciously, I said consciously, omitted and refused to give up the information and there's no particular penalty form. What does that really say about the system that will allow, that will allow, you know, uh, individuals to to conduct themselves in a, in in, in, a, in a way that be, that is basically not fair, is not impartial, and just really outright criminal. So you know, I agree with the points that Brother Hackey raised. I think we got Brother Hackey back. Uh, Brother Hackey, would you like to finish your thoughts, please? Yeah, they, they they do that all the time. They they cut me off, so you know, and hope that I will lose my train of thought. But it doesn't work. And I'm really precise what I said and why I said it. But to conclude my conclude the point that I had to had to make, um, you know, you know, one of the things is that, you know, when we when we talk about the question in terms of justice in the society, and I think at some point people got to realize that there is no justice, and I think most importantly, people got to begin to understand that there is no democracy, and because there is no democracy then the rights of individuals, the rights of human beings are not well guarded or respected. In that context, any of us can be vilified by the system simply because of what we think, not because of what we do, simply because of what we think. And so when we do these kind of programs in which are geared toward making people think about these things, to give people information, to access information that normally they may not come across, uh, when you talk about this kind of stuff, then it makes you an adversary of the state because adversary, because the state cannot afford anybody Who's going to conveniently speak the truth? Uh, speak the truth to power, because in revealing the truth, then people become empowered. People begin to understand precisely how the system operates and how it undermines humanity and how it's a detriment, you know, not only to humanity uh, but to the planet itself. So clearly, uh, this, this notion that uh, we 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 have to become organized around what's going on in society is very very, very very crucial. And so despite the kind of propaganda efforts, you know, by uh, the Western governments in terms of deceiving the mass of the people, nothing can deceive people when they're faced, you know, uh, you know, when come face-to-face face with the hardcore reality in terms of their precarious existence, you know, here in, this, here, in this, here in the West. And when you look at the situation in France, you look at the young brothers and sisters standing up in terms of fighting, fighting power, then it speaks values in terms of the need in terms of people throughout the Western world standing up and taking a page from the young West in terms of standing up, because simply wishing it so, it's not going to make it. It's going to take people actually working together, organized groups of people actually working together to bring a real change. So that is what is important in terms of, you know, uh, when we talk about this question in terms of, in terms of uh, you know, organization, uh, when we talk about uh, the important in terms of institutions, these things are very, very important because without them, there's no chance to remedy the very cruel situation that so many people find themselves confronted with in the Western world. Okay, anyone else would like to respond to some of the things that has been mentioned in the segment on what's going on in your world and community? Yes, uh, I would. I would like to add something that uh, both that uh, that both Mamiya 
Abu Jamal, as well as Angela Davis to a, uh, to a certain extent, are being persecuted and judged because of their political beliefs and their ideas, which do not set well with the state or with the ruling class of society. And uh, and that and uh, you know and I, and I thought uh, you know uh, Haki laid it out very eloquently. That's exactly why uh, you know Mumia Abu-Jamal is in prison tonight, is because of uh, uh, of his political beliefs. And uh, and uh, even though he was, uh, it had been decades since he had been involved, involved with the Black Panther movement, that is why he was framed up. And it's important for people to understand that. And when and uh, and people are increasingly being persecuted for their ideas. And uh, that's becoming increasingly. And I mean, that's why uh, they tried to deny Angela Davis the recognition that, that she deserves for her work. You know, regardless of whether everybody you know agrees with her or her her views or not, the fact is she 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 did a lot of work on behalf of the people and because of her stance that uh, that Palestinians have human rights also that is why she's being persecuted. So I just wanted to draw that connection. Point where I see it, Brother Anthony. Any other comments, response? Um, yes. One of the things I would. Yes, go ahead, Jabari. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. In regards to the discussion taking place, we also have to take into consideration there have been a growing trend where even if it's not necessarily a case like Mumia's, but courts are beginning to be really negative towards those that want to um, utilize the Freedom of Information Act to get information that may be towards progressive cause. And they're doing this purposely. So we gotta understand that they're purposely denying people information that can be publicly accessible through a Freedom of Information Act. They're saying that's null and void. No, because we choose not to, we're not gonna give you the information. A lot of times these will support the claims that the people are making in regards to the corruption going on. So you see that that's the name of the game is to keep the corruption going by denying people access to the information that exposes what's going on. So if you get the information, the facts are there. But the question is how you make sure people don't get access to it. Mm-hmm. Those are some of the games that play in the system. Um, panelists, can I get get y'all response to the statement that I'm going to make and the conditions that the workers are functioning under the so-called federal furlough, furlough, in which the federal employees are not present and paid due to the ongoing um Negotiation between the so-called Trump administration and the rest of the White House around funding money for a fence to put up across the border between U.S. and Mexico. I thought it would be interesting, and I'd like to get your response to how the people, the everyday people, are responding to the needs of those who did not receive a paycheck this federal this this this, this past Friday. And you had at least they say over 800 federal employees have not or has not received a paycheck this past week. And as a result of that, um, there seems to be some sentiment towards these unemployed workers 
where people are organizing fundraisers and they are organizing donate money so these people can get food, so they can pay their house notes and everything. Matter of fact, in one of the cities that I observed recently about how they are attempting to help the people at the present time is to raise money food only for those who can prove that they've been working to receive food and, and additional assistance to help them out. Now, I find that kind of response to your interest when we talk about this question of classes, how certain classes are viewed as more valuable or more important than others. What is your response to this type of response? There's a need for people to be concerned about these recent employees not working and can't pay their bills or can't eat. But what about the everyday population that have been dealing with this crisis most of their lives? Well, uh, I think I think it. Go ahead, go, go ahead, ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Now, I was going to say I think it is reflective of a, of a class schism going on, and uh, it's been played out in the media for decades. Uh, some workers are considered more valuable or essential than others, and uh, and and it seems to center, and it seems to be the sentiment of large sections of the corporate media that police are more valuable than 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 other workers for example and i think uh and i think and and i think you see it also extending to other sections of the federal government now uh now uh now bear in mind that uh that uh you know certain uh cer- certain programs such as um you know uh the treasury uh you know internal revenue uh security a lot of uh, a lot of security and military is federally uh you, you know funded or under the auspices of the federal government and in a fascist society there is a premium placed upon security and safety and uh and uh there seems to be um uh, uh, that there seems to be a bit, and also tourism, which seems to be unrelated, but that's where, but that's a major source of revenue. And it seems like there's a, a lot of concern over the fact that uh, that the maintenance of uh, of national parks and museums isn't being maintained, that there inadequate uh, security at the airports. Uh, you, you know, be, uh, because of this partial shut, uh, shutdown. But I think what is being lost in in all of this is the fact of why are so many people trying to migrate in the U.S. in the first place? And the ultimate question is, whose land is it? Who ultimately ter- uh, uh, has the right to determine who moves where and, and where people can and cannot go? And because a lot of people don't understand the history, they don't realize this is stolen land. And the indigenous people are really trying to move from one area to another. And it's something that's been done for thousands of years. Okay, well, yeah, I, I I think when you talk about the disparity between the perception toward uh, those who are working for the government and those who don't work for the government is 
the, the, the distinction is that, you know, those who work for the government, at least the perception is that they serve a useful purpose, where those who just work show no real useful purpose. I think, it's, I think Brother Anthony Scott is correct. It's a question of conditioning. So I think we've been conditioned to think that way. And so, therefore, those 18,000 people who had received a check is somewhat of a some of, of an issue. And keep in mind also that uh, the media, in terms of how the media sort of uh, uh, positions, you know, these 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 uh, these, these, these news uh, articles, uh, a lot of times when they present the news, it's presented as that you know these people are worthy of concern. Uh, but that same kind of uh, uh, affection toward the 800,000 who work for the federal government is never extended toward those who don't work for the government. In other words, those who don't work for the government are somewhat superfluous. The existence is unimportant, so therefore what happens to them is of no consequence. And unfortunately, it's one of those kind of things that a lot of us tend to buy into because we believe in the media and we tend to follow uh, the, the media's line, hook, line, and sinker, and without even thinking about the implications in terms of you know, uh, what the media is really saying. Uh, but I think that the, the, the mere fact that uh, those people uh, who, who, who didn't receive their checks, uh, the mere fact that they, re- they, they don't organize, if this is not an indication why organization is extremely important, I guess they would never get it. Because when you stop and think about the fact that politicians who, in fact, get paid when the government is shut down, uh, it's a slap in the face. And so, therefore, it seems to me that those 800,000 people should, at this point, begin to understand at least on some level, become empathetic in terms of the plight of working people, you know, in America in terms of kind of injustice they have to deal with in terms of not only maintaining employment, but even any type of uh, any type of realization that what they have what they do is a is, is a benefit to society as a whole. So I think the the, the problem is that is one black organization, I think I'm certainly hoping that after after this shutdown ends, I'm certainly hoping that those eight hundred thousand people, at least a sizable number of those people become involved in organizations that are geared toward, you know, justice uh, in American society. You know, when I ask for that spot, it is, because I hope that's true, Haki, but I wonder, because I find it amazing that these workers who are unemployed right now, their whole focus seems to be just to deal with their own self-interest and not with the email knowledge. Um, the same condition exists among other segments of people. For years and most and many people's lives, and they never had no concerns about the struggles and the hardship that these people were going through. I was thinking that since they are now confronted with this, maybe it raised their conscience to realize what's it like for other folks for years who have been under these same situations, and no one giving any kind of concern or looking down upon them or calling them or viewing them as failures or viewing them not having the right to be have access to a home, to food, and other necessities that all human beings need. I just find that, you know, real, real interesting in terms of that behavior. Anyone else would like to respond to yeah, that? Yeah, well, you know, you know, let me just, real quickly, real quickly, let me just respond to something Brother Afra you just said. You know, for years, uh-huh. you know, it's been, it's been, um, it's been um, uh, okay for people to simply disparage those people who are unemployed. In other words, the, the position is that, well, these people don't want to work because they don't want to work because they're lazy, they're shiftless, they're blah, 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 blah. And so when we try to bring people's attention to the con- people's conscience to the reality that when you talk about unemployment, it's a systemic issue. It has nothing to do with terms of individuals. It's a systemic issue. That those the people empowered create a system in place to ensure that X number of people would never receive jobs. And that's all by design. And that's designed specifically in terms of keeping profits up. So we're talking about a system. 
And so when we talk about that fact, a lot of people dismiss that, oh, they're just making excuses for folks, and it doesn't exist. Well, now here you got a situation where these, these 800,000 people who, who, no, who no fault of their own lost their jobs, who can't pay their rent, can't pay their mortgage, who are struggling, who can't have access to food because they have no money. So now they're struggling because in the society, over 70% of the people are live paycheck to paycheck. So now they have a, a, a more but thorough understanding in terms of what average, average people in America are confronted with, or people throughout the world for that matter, in terms of their inability you know, to have you know, money for things essentials like food and shelter. So I'm hoping that this will sensitize at least some of them, certainly, certainly maybe three-quarters of them, to realization that, you know what, we have to have organization because this kind of injustice that I just endured, that, if, that, you know, that it could happen to me again, and now I can understand how so easily it could happen to anybody because I'm, I was unemployed as a result of something that had nothing to do with me. And so hopefully people will begin to gravitate toward uh, a, a, a more holistic perception of, in terms of, you know, how humanity should work and to move toward a situation where this kind of thing doesn't happen to people, particularly when we talk about societies that are supposedly affluent, like, you know, like, like most Western societies. So that's my whole point. I'm not, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly when you talk about the fact, you know, that the individual thing, you know, you know, it's all about me and woe is me. You know, I'm, I'm suffering. It shouldn't happen. You know, I work for the government. This shouldn't happen to me. You know what I mean? And, of course, that, that is, that is a, a, a big part in terms of, you know, people's, how people think, and there's no question about that. But I'm hoping that, you know, given this, the hardship they endure, that they become a little, just a little bit more empathetic and begin to understand that if, if, that if they lack jobs because of something, something you know, uh, reasons beyond their control, then certainly the masses of people who don't have work in America and the Western world who don't have access to work, it's, it's something that's beyond their control. So I'm hoping that they realize that. We'll wait and see. You know, and one other little tidbit on this phenomenon, and then we'll move forward to our next segment, is that I recently were told that workers who work with the Federal Reserve System out of Philadelphia, this incident does not affect them because they had put in a special legislation I think it was in 2006 or 2009 when they first when this, when they first had this um, stop shortage payment of federal workers. They put in a special legislation where they could not um, be affected by this. They had to figure out how could they acquire a special legislation where in the future these kind of short stop shortage uh, payment. Issues will not affect them, but it will not apply to other federal reserve workers throughout the country. What does that say about a system that allows that kind of maneuvering to, to maneuver around certain interests based on certain regions of politics? I think what happened is that... Um well, Philadelphia, well, Pennsylvania is a, uh, it's a peculiar situation, and I think uh, somehow they, uh, you know, they might have gotten special legislation that uh, that in the event of a shutdown, and uh, and these, yeah, yeah, they, uh, you know, uh, a, a shutdown, they, 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 you know, the the, the state. Uh, might, 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 might be temporarily, uh, you know, funding 
you 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 uh you know the you know the salaries of rank and file federal workers and I'm not uh, I'm not talking about uh you know the executive branch of government which is of course still getting paid. Unfortunately, even though it speaks to uh maneuvering and also the uh the inequality uh that inequality status even at the government level among workers. Uh because if there was indeed a shortage of funds, you would think every everybody across the board would be suffering. If if the if you if you were talking about all workers being equal, and uh, this society puts more value on certain workers than others, and so ultimately it's a contradiction that exists in capitalism. That's that certain forms of labor are valued more than others, and uh, and it's this individualistic attitude. The selfishness that uh, that uh, that capitalism imbues in the people that prevent them from seeing that. Well, you know, unfortunately, unfortunately, you know, anything that's going to affect stocks, uh, it's going to uh, it's going to be looked at seriously by the ruling class, and so therefore they have the power because they can they buy the politicians, uh, they pretty much run this country. They're in a position to determine, you know, pick and choose, you know, who will be saved and who won't be saved. Uh, so not only did they uh, pass the special measure to fund the Department of Transportation, but also in the sense of Wall Street in terms of processing, you know, uh, you know, stock trades and and that kind of thing. So clearly, it's all about it's all about their bottom line. It's about the wealthy's bottom line. It has nothing to do in terms of what's good for the country. It's a question of what's good for the wealthy, and that is what this quintessential difference is. That's what we have to understand that. So nobody should be surprised that when we talk about, you know, stock prices and the impact the economy is having on stock prices, then we understand clearly that these 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 the decline in stock prices impact who? The ten percent of the population who control who buy and sell stocks. So clearly that's what it's all about. It's all about uh, ensuring that the, the, the welfare then get their way and that's what it's all about. It's always been about that. All right, panelists, what we're going to do right now, we're going to pause for the calls. When we come back, we're going to start the second segment of this program where we're going to talk about and do a review on the past and the present and the future. We're going to talk about some of the past articles and maybe remind people of some key things that have taken place that we need to remember as we continue to function under the system and try to figure a way out of how to get out of this oppression and how to move forward. We're going to talk about a view of the past, present, and the future when we come back. We're calls for the pause right now, and you ought to listen to Africa on the Move. We'll be right back. No mind your nationality, you have got the 
And so for her to say that, who of course what I'm saying, the UK government is the lab dog, lab dog of the US. And so whatever the US does, it uh, it, 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 it it unilaterally expects uh the UK to follow suit. And so for Theresa May to take this such a stand that she's no longer content to depend on others speaks volumes. Also, when you talk about in terms of this question in terms of, you know, stability when it comes to Europe, one of the things that uh, when we talk about the U.S. tariffs, you know, on, the, on, on particularly on China and Russia, it has a very deleterious impact on the overall functioning economy. The, 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 the adverse impact you know, of, these, of these tariffs not only affect the U.S. corporations, but affect corporations throughout the world. And the Europeans are pretty upset about that, big time. In fact, one of the things that the EU representative said, he said, he made a statement in which he talked about the fact that who is the U.S.? Who are you people to tell us that we, who we can trade with, that to tell us that we can't trade with Iran? Now, of course, we need oil because we have a population to take care of. And so, therefore, we can make trades which is in the interest of the European Union and not the interest of America. Well, that didn't sit well with Donald Trump. Donald Trump's position was very, very clear that he made a statement when he said that the EU is an enemy of the U.S. Think about that one for a while. When you look, when you think about the history in terms of U.S.-European relations, and you talk about Bretton Woods, and you talk about all these finance institutions, IMF, um, uh, import-export, and you talk about all these institutions being created in the U.S. for the sole purpose in terms of uh, American European unity, uh, the mere fact that he calls the EU the enemy speaks valiance in terms of the kind of uh, hostility he has toward Europe in the sense that he don't see Europe doing enough in terms of uplifting or buttressing uh, the, the, uh, the strengths uh, of the visibility or the power of America. And so, therefore, in his mind, because they're not kowtowing uh, to, the, to the U.S., uh, in particular U.S. policy, then they are, quote-unquote, the enemy. So clearly, to, to say that their source of stability, I think, stretches stretches uh, the imagination a lot. Uh, there's no way that the U.S. is a source of stability for the Europe. In fact, they're the source of a lot of problems that Europe is currently having. And then when you look at in terms of what's happening with France, when you look at in terms of the kind of policies that Macron uh, 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 endorsed, uh, clearly the same kind of policies uh, are being endorsed throughout the Western world. And so, therefore, it's having a, a very negative impact on the, the aspirations and the interests of the masses of folks, and as such, compelling people to actually take a stand. And France is a perfect example in terms of people taking a stand. So the notion that, uh, that the U.S. can impose stability for Europe, those days are long past. And I think that uh, this police minister is way off base. You know, Brother Anthony, um, when I read this article, one of the points that stood out real, real um, interesting to me, I think that's something that Africa could, 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 could understand and use, is the issue that they have taken the position that they cannot defend you if they don't have a European army. What lessons can Africa take from that statement or that philosophy? Uh, a lesson that, uh, that Nkrumah tried to convey several decades ago that uh that 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 it is time for Africa to form its own army, not armies an army an african high command and he called for that in in his struggle for pan africanism 
And I think that's uh, that's an important lesson. That and the thing about it, though, I, I, the, another thing this article tells me is that the uni- that the unity of the imperialist countries is starting to, is getting strained under the pressures of uh, climate change and also the resistance to imperialism being waged worldwide. And uh, is and it's taken a toll on the imperialist countries, and also, uh, and not to mention the competition that exists among the various multinational corporations of the world. And that and that competition knows no bounds. And I think these factors are causing fragmentation in the imperialist bloc. And that uh, with the crisis going on in Africa and worldwide, Africans ha- have to start uh, s- start th- thinking in terms of um, unifying our struggle and getting organized and also planning our development on an international scale, especially a continental one. And uh, and uh, because I think I think uh, you know the crisis of imperialism and capitalism are wreaking havoc on, on the planet. So I think it's very important that people get organized, and we got to look uh, and we got to be prepared to fight for our lives and our liberty. So Bobby, when you read the article. Uh... What was some of the things that came to your mind in terms of looking at Europe in the context of not being so unified? Because, you know, often um, we look at uh, Western propaganda, they always won't give you the illusion that there are unity among Europeans. And history has shown that historically uh, this whole question of European unity is more of a myth than anything. They have never been united on anything other than the oppression of Africa and African people. So what do you take from this, the significance of this article, Brother Zabari, you and then Brother Moses? I think we lost Brother Zabari. We go to Brother Moses. Who will take on this article, Brother uh, Moses? Well, I think it's very interesting that this Polish uh, ambassador could think that the U.S. would somehow look out for their interests. When Donald Trump has made it plain that it's America first, that he wants to make America great again, and that it's, it's, he is a nationalist, you know, and that uh, he's, he's not interested in pursuing other people's interests. He's interested in pursuing America's, what he conceives as America's interests. And uh, so... You know, the Europeans have, you know, uh, France and Germany, and, you know, have taken this, this to heart, and they see that they cannot depend on the U.S. for any kind of security or any kind of uh, umbrella effect, that basically they're on their own, and they have to look out for their own interests. And so uh, I just think it's very, very un, uh, uh, absurd that the Polish Ambassador would think that the U.S. would look out for his interests. Obviously, he's he's got some kind of uh, personal uh, 
uh, aspirations that uh, don't include the reality of the situation. Thank you. I agree those sentiments, uh, Brother Moses, as well with Brother Haki. It clearly seemed to me that uh, this brother, this 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 um, prime minister opponent, um, is colluding with it or has been supported or being supported by clearly the, the power to be uh, for the U.S. We can't forget how the role the U.S. has played in terms of this whole question of how they have destabilized Eastern European countries and the creation of Poland up to this point. So I agree with both of y'all sentiments. Okay, let's move forward. Any other response? Anybody else want to make another response to a particular article? And we'll move forward. Keep in line in terms of looking at what's going on in Europe and its impact on us as people. I find it real interesting. That would be an interesting article. I'm looking at racism as it manifests itself in the sport, sports world. You know, there was a brother out of Manchester, England, a soccer player, and he was speaking out against racism. The title of the article is Manchester City Raheem Sterling Support After Racist Attack. And the soccer player reminded me a lot of what's going on even in America and throughout the West when it comes to African people. This whole question in terms of when they look at African athletes, how they are being viewed and being victimized uh, by racism. Brother Anthony, I'll let you start off with this one. When we look at this particular artist, one of the um, allegations he made or one of the institutions that he attacked the most, he was saying the media is playing a major part of it because how they treat and purport, purport to project African athletes compared to how to project European African athletes. Do you find this particular phenomenon very similar and the same with how they deal with African athletes here in the U.S. and throughout the Western world? Uh, yes, I do find it uh, similar. And, I, and, I, and, and that's what struck me about the piece, because uh, the, the, uh, there seems to be a different st- standard of conduct uh, expected of African athletes uh, as opposed to European athletes. And uh, and uh, you know and there's uh, and there seems to be and uh, uh, you know uh, very often from elementary school we taught that uh, sports are supposed to be uh, very unifying they're supposed to transcend uh, boundaries but they really don't and um, you know and uh, you know Africans. Um, Athletes like Af- like uh, African employees in any in any other occupation are being used to advance European interests primarily, and uh, that's what I see pretty much internationally. Because uh, uh, let's see, because even when uh, when Africans participate in these uh, soccer or baseball or, or other sports teams. On behalf of European interests, they still that they suffer the same level of disrespect as their counterparts in other occupations, and uh, so I think it speaks to the racism that pervades uh, uh, sports and is a, and is a, a microcosm of European culture in general, in, in generally. 
Brother Hackett, what's your take, and your your take on how Nike has dealt with this incident and other incidents like Colin Kaepernick? And I thought it would be interesting in terms of the slogan they used that, um, or the model they used was that speaking up doesn't always make life easier, but never, but easier never change anything. Speaking up doesn't always make life easier, but easy never change anything. What you make up like you wrote in all of this? Ultimately, it's all about them finding ways again. Escort situations did with African athletes to further their gain and making more money. Yeah, well, uh, Nike made a business decision. A lot of uh, African youth, uh, you know, by Nikes. Therefore, for Nike, it's a business decision. And so then they come across as revolutionary because of their interest to do so. But corporations would do that. I mean, as long as it doesn't uh, affect the bottom line, whatever it is that enhances the bottom line, they would do it. So I'm not surprised that Nike would say something like that. And I'm, and I'm, I'm not surprised that they support Raheem Sterling in terms of the kind of uh, the kind of situation he finds himself confronted with, you know, with, there in the UK. Uh, one of the things, Brother Africa, I just want to mention though the uh, the, the diversion of, uh, of of perceptions as it relates to African and, and white athletes. It's very very interesting. That specifically, you know, one of the things when we talk about Europe, I mean, we have to keep in mind, you know, not all not all of the fans are hooligans or racists. I mean, you got a very small contingent of loud individuals who, unfortunately, you know, captures the media attention. And the question is, why does the media keep blowing them up out of proportion? Well, they do so because of political, as Brother Ash alluded to, of political concerns. Because one of the things they want to do is prop up racism, because long as racism going in throughout Europe, and particularly as it manifests itself for the immigrants, then you can keep people away from the reality in terms of the capitalist system, in terms of the destruction that imposes on the masses of people. So this implementation of racism is simply a move that they use in America as well uh, for the sole purpose of dividing people, to keep people fighting, keep people away from the reality of what's really going on. Uh, one of the things, yeah, let me just mention this also, Brother Africa, um, you know, um, you know, and, and this is a, pertaining to America, and I, and I have to raise this because the similarities are, are so similar. Uh, one of the things is when, when often when you talk about the betrayal of, of black athletes, they're often betrayed as, you know, physical or talented, whereas betrayal of white athletes is always intelligent. And the question is, you know, why is that distinction? Why the, the black athletes are never uh, a play, is never perceived as intelligent, uh, but is always perceived as athletic or, 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 or physical prowess? Why is that? It, it plays to a certain stereotype in terms of African athletes, and so therefore, again, they do that on on a, on a conscious level. And often, when you watch television, um, particularly when it comes to sports, uh, the commentators often make a point, irrespective of the commentator. They all, whether they are African or European, they always say the white athletes are intelligent, and the and the black athletes are just athletic or physically endowed. So it's very very interesting that they're not that dichotomy. Uh, one of the things when we talk about the, the diversion of treatment in terms of you know uh, af- af- I mean athletes, one of the things is that um, you know there was, let me just give you some examples in terms of what I'm talking about. Uh, there was a linebacker by the name of Bill Romanowski. He was a linebacker. This guy was known to use steroids, but as opposed to outing him and explaining you know you know exposing his steroid use, uh, they would instead describe him as intense. 
Now, this guy got into a fight with a teammate, and uh, the teammate's helmet fell off, and he delivered an uh, uppercut to the guy's chin, you know, breaking his eye socket and giving him brain damage. And despite that, you know, he wasn't defined by the media as a criminal. And of course, if he was a black person and a black athlete and did such a thing, then he would have been not only been out of the league, but he had been defined as a, as a criminal, as, as, you know, as someone who's not worthy of playing professional sports. Uh, Bill Rothen, uh, Ben Rothenberg uh, uh, was alleged, or the Pittsburgh Steelers was alleged to rape two women. Well, the media does a very good job in terms of downplaying that. And the question is, why are you downplaying that? Even if it's not legitimate, the question is that the allegations arose, and as the media, when shouldn't you cover that? Well, certainly, if there were, he was an African, it would have been covered. In other words, this whole notion of creative perception, this negative perception for black black athletes, is very prominent in terms of the media. Um, now, one of the things when we talk about this this this, this bias toward the, toward the toward athletes, black athletes, one of the things recently the NFL did a report and it found that all the traffic related stop arrests, eighty percent of the people that were stopped and arrested were African athletes. That's very very interesting. That speaks volumes in terms of this kind of crime of this kind of bias that's that's prevalent among you know black athletes throughout the Western world. So clearly. You know this this whole notion in terms of using the athletes in terms of a political gain to create to perform in as much division as possible in society is something that the power the power elite those in power do very very well. You know, brother Moses and panelists, I thought it was interesting in terms. Of I like to pose this, and brother Moses, I like to respond first around the issue of when African athletes are confronted with racial attitudes and racial actions that may be threatening to their well-being, how should they respond? I noticed in this article where one of the coach from Spain stated that he appreciated this brother in terms of his demeanor, how he dealt with it. And he used the word that he is calm, he's happy playing, he's beloved in the locker room, so it is good. Why is it every time when it comes to us, no matter how um, we are treated or how we are confronted with injustice, they expect a certain demeanor for us to take everything and not act out like any normal human being will act out when it comes to being inflicted with pain and injustice? Yeah, Paul, as um, I think it was uh, Lucy in the peanut, peanut cartoon that said, when you got naturally curly hair, people expect more out of you. And I think um, black people are expected to be, you know, uh, a little bit more um, humane, a little bit more conscious, a little bit more more uh, under-compassionate than, than uh, the, the Europeans are. African people are... are uh, uh, expected to take the highway as Michelle Obama has been emphasizing, uh, which means you you don't you don't uh, lower yourself to the to the uh, attitudes of the people who are attacking you. And uh, this this is uh, you know it's, uh, I don't know what can be accomplished um, more to see more more reasonable to, to, to calmly point out what's going on and not get too, too 
too personally involved in in the attack uh, because it's, it's it's a racism and it's a systematic thing, and it's it's not so it's not even really personal in some sense uh, because it's directed towards the whole African community, and so you know one must one must uh, be able to see through what's happening and point out what's happening, and it just takes you know a certain amount of character and. Uh, uh, and intellectualism, uh, uh, but it's you know it's not. That's what's what's uh, what's what's most desirable, but it's not what's always going to happen because we have the human condition, and you know we just you know we do take things personal and we get emotionally and psychologically involved when there's racist attacks. Uh, one. Uh, recently in, in the D.C. area, there was a, a hockey t- team player, this youth hockey league they have, and uh, one of the black play, African players was uh, uh, told derogatory things about in uh, 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 the, the, the Washington Capitals, the pro team, uh, they came along and, and, and uh, and uh, pointed out the, the the injustice of the situation and had the team in, in, into the Capitals um, uh, player room and and and, and uh, center and uh, and you know tried to uh, to tell to encourage the, the young black player to continue. Uh, there is a lot of racism and uh, you know. We have to we have to recognize that uh, the future is bright and racism is doomed. Thank you. You know, Palace, I, I, I hear you. I hear you. I hear I hear you, brother Moses. Uh, you know, uh, it is ideally speaking, it's good to be calm in the face of adversity. But the problem is that it doesn't have impact on you, both physically and, and psychologically, when you have to con- contend with stuff like that. Uh, often, I think of um, the great tennis player Arthur Ashe. He was very, very good, even when calls were clearly uh, biased against him. When, they, when he made shots that were inside the line, and they say outside the line, he's very calm. You know, he, he just say, explain, are you sure you made the right call? And he believed at that, and he would go forward. Uh, but it, had, it, did have an impact on, it did have an impact on him. Uh, you know, but one of the things I have a problem with is that, you know, that somehow because you're a person of color, you're an African person, that you must remain calm in adversity, in adversity when others should have the right to, ex- to to express how they really feel. If that entails exploding, then you explode. So I think that uh, somehow that to, to, to somehow paint us as somehow um, less human in terms of our right to express how we legitimately feel, I, I have a philosophically I have a problem with that. It's sort of like you know kids telling their parents when it comes to police, be careful what you do, be careful how you move, be careful what you say. I'm like, what? You know what? I tell my, you know, I tell, used to tell my children the reality in terms of what's going on. But this, being a child, you're going to be a child. I'm not going to tell you not to be a child because you're a child. I tell them reality in terms of what goes on in, 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 comes up in terms of you know the community police relations. But I'm not going to tell you not to be a child because as a human being, you have a right to be a human being. In this case, a human child. So philosophically, I have somewhat somewhat of a problem, you know, somewhat of a problem with that. Also, I'm thinking about the sister, the young sister out of France. I can't remember her name. She's a figure skater. 
of course, you know, this is a very conservative sport, and much like tennis. Uh, but the young, the young sister was good. I mean, she was she was great. I mean, she, I mean, you know, it was not even a sport that I I, I patronized. But I tell you, when when she was skating, I would stop and look at her because she's so graceful, and uh, she had such power. And the way in which you know her her movements, the way in which she skated, was exciting. Uh, but she caught to the hair in terms of when it comes to scoring, and it was and it was race based. It has nothing to do with the fact you know that she didn't have absolute perfect skills in terms of skating. Is there's more the fact to do with you don't belong here, and but she was very very calm about that when she was you know when she was younger, she used to express her discontent in terms of the call, but as she got older, you know she just accepted it as as a given that this kind of these kind of biases are going to show up from time to time, but again I philosophically have a problem with that you know that African people should not have the right to express how they really feel, uh you know of course or, of course that's a within context. I'm not saying if you're at a at, at job and somebody does something that, that 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 you know is wrong, and you can tell your supervisor, you know, go to hell. I mean, you just can't do that. You know what I mean? No. Uh, I mean, you can express how you feel in in, in terms of which you're palatable to the supervisor, uh, but nonetheless, uh, I understand it in that context. But generally speaking, in the mm-hmm. world of sports, when it comes to expressing how you feel, I don't think we should be limited simply because we're African people. I agree with you, Haki. I think I, I think the problem is though, um, as um, you know, in every other occupation that Africans are allowed to have access to, uh, Africans are held to a higher standard of conduct, and uh, we're not allowed to get emotional or or, or to show human uh, feelings. And if you do do that, then your career is over. And, um, you know, and uh, the the case with, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, Raheem Sterling reminds me of uh, Jackie Robinson in some way, in some ways. In other words, he, uh, he, he had a very calm demeanor, was always very appealing. But the thing about, though, you know, that 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 uh, verbal abuse, uh, the racist attacks, uh, you know, all of that. That does take a toll on you psychologically. You may be able to hide it, but the, uh, but but what happens is Africans, t- uh, you know, take out their frustration on other people in the community that did not have anything to do with uh, the psychological attack they were subject to. And you see, and, and see, see, that's the problem of uh, of keeping everything bottled up. It eventually has to come out somehow. So I think, uh, so, uh, so I think, uh, you know, with, uh, you know, equality in sports will come a long way when Africans are allowed to be human, just like, uh, you know, just like everybody else. Anthony and Pamela, speaking of the question of being human, I'd like to get your response to the NFL recent response and decision to. Fire uh, the brother who was the running back for the Kansas City Chief. Uh, what was his last name? The running back for Kansas City Chief, Hunt. Hunt was a running back for the Kansas City Chief. He was in the hotel in his own room, at his own business, and there was a collusion among young European girls and men. They came to his hotel, messing with him, calling him all kind of racial slurs. Tormenting him, 
and he responded back in a way that he thought was suitable to elev- to um, to um, to resolve the situation that he was confronted with. Well, what the NFL team did while properly investigating it and while properly considering the situation around that all of this was contrived by these young European girls and men to try to get money out of them was to fire him because he ended up punching and kicking this European girl. When she provoked, they created this whole scenario. They had no business being in his private room. It was all created. And there was no consideration to to those facts. So was he unjustified being a human being, responding to his well-being as relates to being terrorized by these group of, of what's, the word, what's the word for what you call people who like to be around football players. But this was a tiff. Oh, groupies or not, not fans. Yeah, yeah. Group, he didn't even know these. He didn't even know them, but he gave the impression that he knew these people. So mm-hmm. what do y'all think about that response from the football team, Kansas City, and the NFL in general? He had someone that was talking, someone that was being terrorized, someone that was all planned to try to provoke him into a stage of um, a stage of um, what's the word for a stage in which he felt like he needed to defend himself. But yet he has lost his career over this. That's an aspect of that double standard that I was talking about earlier. There's uh, that 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 now now uh, you know I mean I mean I mean you can't simply go around taunting people, provoking them, and not expecting them to respond. And uh, let's see, and 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 uh, you know instead of. Um, you know, resorting to a uh, to a fan or a customer's always right sort of philosophy, he probably should have get that they they probably should should have heard all sides of the issue and not fire him over that. But the but but the, but but the thing about it though, but I mean, but, but I mean, even it, you know, even if uh, you know, if you're an entertainer or an, or an athlete, any sort of entertainment. There's so much, there's only so much abuse you can take, and um, you know, and you can't always, um, and you know, and because of the other stressors going on in your life, you're not gonna always, you you uh, you, you know, be, 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 uh, you know, be above uh, making a mistake or making a bad decision, or or, or responding like any other human being would that's being taunted. I mean, I mean that's unfair. And uh, and I'm wondering what you you know what, whether or not he had any security around to prevent that sort of thing, because uh, uh, for, uh, even entertainers allow a certain amount of space, you know, when that when, when they're not working, you know, to uh, you know kind of regroup. I think that was one of his errors, Anthony, because he had no security with him. He was on his own in his own private room, and they went and seek him out. So, you know, right. I also wonder if that was planned by other forces to undermine the interests and tilt the battle of, of the 
battle of um, dominance by one particular team over others. Uh, many times mm-hmm. teams would set up scenarios to get rid of important ball players and stuff, and they are unconscious of it. But you know, but you know, brother Africa, the, 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 you know, one of the downsides of being a famous person is that you're gonna have people going to taunt you. Some of them are doing it for economic reasons. They figure if they can provoke you into punching them, then that's a large payday. So you gotta be very, very concerned about that. Uh, the other thing I think is that you know, uh, you know, one of the things is that you know, punching punching a young lady, even though she might have been outrageous. I mean, even though she, clearly she was a provocateur, but clearly uh, because she was a young lady. You know, I think it's at that point, you know, you utilize your, your, your talking skills. I mean, if you have to degrade her to get her to back up, then that's what you got to do. But physically, you know, punching her, that's that might be a bit much, I think. Uh, you know, I, I support uh, Kareem Hunt in terms of his desire to be, you know, to be left alone and be respected. But the bottom line is that uh, you always don't, uh, not in control of the, the situation. And so clearly this, this situation was contrived. There was someone, like you said, Brother Africa, there was someone who was behind us who encouraged the young people to do what they did. And they knew that there were some benefits in terms of him doing that because there was a payday involved. But clearly, uh, but still, it, it, it could never justify punching a woman, though. Uh, under no context would you punch a woman. I mean, clearly, in, even the, even domestic situations, I mean, women are very, very good in terms of pushing your buttons. I mean, women, women are very good at talking. I mean, they're very verbal. And so a woman can beat you up with just her with just her mouth. I mean, she you know she don't have to swing. She can beat you up with her, with her mouth. Uh, I mean, I suppose that's a talent, um, but uh, certainly, you know, uh, it's a reality and for a lot of women in terms of that ability. But putting your hands on them could never be justified under any circumstances. So I think Kareem Hunt, as talented he was, you know, uh, that is conditioned to overcome him. I mean, in terms of being an athlete, being tough and being strong and standing your ground, I think it's very much uh, the, the attributes of an athlete. But you cannot use those when you're not on the field. you got to sort of turn that off. And it's very difficult sometimes for athletes to turn that off. But but clearly, you're punching a woman. is simply, If you punch one of the guys, I was like, hell yeah. If I would have you help them, I would join in with him. How they helped him. But punching a woman, I think, is, is sort of unacceptable. But that's my position. Yeah. And I want to say our stock speeches before we take our station break and move on. Move forward with our next article that really deal with former President Lula and his response and his thanks of the Cuban people. Any other comments on this article? Mm-mm. If if not, let's take a station break. Let's pause for the calls when we come back. We will continue to do a review on the past, present, future. Articles and issues that have taken place in 2019. You are listening to Africa on the Moon. We'll be right back. America stolen from Africa 
for the world to know um, about this whole question of Cuba role in terms of supplying health care to the people of Brazil. Okay. He was thanking the Cuban for providing medical assistance to the Brazilian people. And, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, and being willing to send medical professionals, uh, doctors, nurses, et cetera, to areas where there were not sufficient Brazilian doctors available. And uh, he thanked them for this. And he said it would be great if they were, if they were, if it wasn't necessary, if there were sufficient Brazilian uh, medical personnel to take care of the Brazilian population. But he explained that because Brazil was one of the last countries in the Western Hemisphere to establish a university. Uh, that that, that they, 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 there's a serious shortage of uh, medical doctors in Brazil. And uh, he was grateful for them. And he thought, and he probably thought this was important because he uh, he wanted to uh, let the Cuban people know that, that the work they did in Brazil was and is appreciated by the masses of Brazilian people. And and uh, and and the views of the current government of Brazil does uh, you know does not reflect this, of course. And uh, and uh, so I think that's why I thought it was important to show that the Brazilian people appreciated and cared for the assistance that that was provided by the Cubans. And. Um, and it seems like uh, the, uh, the, uh, the U.S. is trying to prop up a work of form governments uh, throughout Central and South America that are friendly to U.S. interests in, and struggling against those countries that are trying to build socialism, such as Cuba, Venezuela, and Bolivia. And... Um, and um, you know, and the thing about it, though, and the people, uh, you know, are resisting, and, and, you know, in spite of their expenses. And uh, and, and what uh, what people in the U.S. don't tend, don't understand is that it's policies like these that are causing uh, people to migrate uh, from Central and South America to the U.S. Brother Haki, you know, he made a statement that in Brazil, Cuban doctors arrived at places where there was no Brazilian doctors. They arrived to many poor and distant communities, some of them indigenous communities, which are now being attended to by a health professional. Now, why would any country would want to force and arrest doctors who would come volunteer to help serve the population? In terms of healthcare, matter of fact, he argued that healthcare was a human right and it's something that um, can't be commercialized. It can't be a, a, a commodity. Um, speak to that, that phenomenon, Brother Hackey. Yeah, well, you know, some people take a position that um, medical care is not a human right. Uh, they say it's a commodity like all other things. 
and therefore is it should only be provided to those who can pay. Uh clearly uh brother uh uh Silva, uh you know uh Lula de Silva he opposed that philosophy. But clearly um there are a lot of politicians, uh, very powerful connected politicians in Brazil who come in a position that uh you know uh it's all about class. And so therefore those who are wealthy deser- are deserving in terms of medical care and those who are poor they have with you. So we we can we can agree there's a certain amount of shotting fraud, a certain amount of uh, uh, taking a, uh, taking a, uh, pride in seeing other people suffer that exists in the minds you know people throughout the world. Um, Brazil pretty much uh, epitomizes that kind of mindset in which uh, not only were these areas lacking in terms of professional you know doctors, uh, but they didn't want any there. They wanted the people to suffer. Uh, like America, they were in a situation where these same people would ultimately find themselves inside of these prisons, uh, you know, um, in Brazil. Uh, so clearly uh, that kind of mindset uh, is not good in terms of overall functioning of society, but they did manage to uh, maneuver with the help of the CIA uh, and the media in Brazil to actually create a case to justify his imprisonment, uh, even though uh, he was in prison for something that was very, very dubious. In fact, the reason why he went in prison, because of allegedly of corruption, the position, the, the state position was that uh, he wanted an apartment in this real nice apartment, and um, they worked some deal out. In return, he would give state contracts uh, to the uh, to the landlord. And of course, the problem was they were never able to establish, in fact, that it really happened. But he was convicted anyway because the judge who was over him overhearing uh, this this case, her job is to lock up uh, polit- political dissidents. And one of the things that they wanted to do was to make sure that the Silva, uh, Lula de Silva, couldn't run against this this this, this menace, uh, this Bolsonaro, uh, this thing uh, that's currently the uh, president of Brazil. So clearly there was a lot of uh, political maneuvering going on uh, to make sure uh, that uh, the Silva won win and that uh, Russia will, be, I mean, Brazil will remain in the in the in the in the in the, in the, in the, in the remain a satellite of the U.S. government. You know, brother Moses, Brazil has a large African population. How would this decision affect Africans in Brazil as well as throughout the world? There seem to be wherever Cuban doctors uh, functioning, they come constantly under harassment under right wing governments. Um, what do you make of this, 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 kind of, this kind of policy? Well, you know, the racism and imperialism that's predominant in Brazil, uh, this continuation of Walter Rodney's uh, How Europe Undeveloped Africa, the understanding that Brazil has the largest population of Africans outside of Africa that is on the planet. And so, uh, you know, this racism and this uh fact that there were no universities and and uh, and until and uh until nineteen twenty two I believe he said and so you know this all speaks to the imperialist you know na- white nationalist uh supremacy uh, and uh and this and this no compassion no no empathy no no uh humaneness for African people and so, you know, the doctors from Cuba, you know, were they help were helped to Brazil, and and he rec- the, 
Silvio recognized that, and uh, and you know the the reason that they're in the situation they're in is because we got a a white nationalist in power in Brazil, and uh, he's he's determined to suppress and uh, and arrest and kill African people, and you know this is a situation is a very racist racist fascist situation. The U.S. government, you know, being the racist government it is, obviously is in collusion with Brazil and exploiting the country for its resources and uh, has no desire for equality or human rights or anything along those lines. I thought Brother Anthony put it it quite correctly uh, in his explanation, and so I'll just leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Panel is closing. I just would like for y'all to make a remark on this last article for the day. And as we think about um, strategies and plans toward liberating our people at home, Africa, I think we need to really give some serious attention to what it means where out of 54 African countries, at least 53 African countries, they have African. There's a really interesting article called Look at the Numbers. It's titled, U.S. military presence in Africa, all over the continent, and still ex- expanding. And the magazine World Africa it was printed on the eighth, on the thirtieth, on the eighth of no- oh, November, the thirtieth of two thousand eighteen, and it raises um, a serious issue. What does it really mean to the second world today, to African people today, as we make plans for the future in terms of signal liberation? where at the present time, the phenomenon is you have U.S. military in every African country on the continent. What's the significance of that in terms of how can you actually make an analysis of how to move forward and help plan our liberation? Yeah, well, you know, which, which, which you, which the question that you raised is a very interesting one, Brother Africa. Uh, there is, there's no easy solution. Uh, of course, awareness goes a great deal in terms of, you know, trying to combat the situation Africa currently finds itself. Uh, there seems to be a tremendous amount of corruption that exists in the minds of so many African leaders. And uh, we, need, uh, we need, you know, uh, African leaders, you know, uh, who are willing to take a stand, who are willing to fight, who are willing to understand that the development of Africa is not going to come in the hands of, of Western nation, that, in fact, if they're to develop, and they must do their, they must do it through their own devices. Uh, to the extent that China is willing to help Africa develop, then that should be welcome. But ultimately, it's up to the Africans themselves in terms of you know their own development. Uh, but I think we can do a great deal in terms of from the outside, in terms of you know exposing African uh, corruption, uh, particularly those leaders who who are complicit in the, the underdevelopment of Africa, to the masses of folks you know both both you know in the West and in the East. In the hopes that it would it would it would it would it would cause future leaders you know, not to you know go down the same uh, same road. So it's a very complex question that you answer, and we don't have much time, so I'll close the day. Brother Anthony, your response to the question? Yes. Um, in order to get out of the uh, out of the situation that Africa is currently, Africans are going to ha- Pan Africanism has to be built at the grassroots level, at the level of the people. 
and uh, and uh, you know, and uh, history has shown that you cannot count on the current political leadership because uh, because uh, the political leadership is too corrupt and too imbued with capitalist values to serve the interests of, uh, of Africa. So we have to engage in a struggle to transform the consciousness of the masses of African people in order for us to work in our own interests to build Pan-Africanism. Pan-Africanism is the only force that's powerful enough to once and for all uh, smash the forces, all the forces of imperialism and, uh, and, and build a unified socialist Africa that will serve the interests of the struggling working masses of African people and not just a few. And uh, the situation is dire because is the current leadership in Africa that allowed AFRICOM in in the first place. So it's so it's it is very clear that they can't be counted on. That it has to be at the level of the people, and we must intensify the struggle to politically educate and organize our people. Brothers Moses, the number said there are over 200,000 U.S. troops stationed in over 177 countries. In Africa alone, you have 7,500 military personnel, including 1,000 contractors deployed in Africa. If you want to look at comparison for the figures, that was only 6,000 just a year ago. So just look at these numbers, looking at Africa in 53 or 54 countries. What do you say to African people and people who are seeking their liberation in the near future about the importance of recognizing this this this, this phenomenon present exists on the ground in Africa? Yeah, there there's there is no reason why there should be so many troops other than imperialism itself. There's nearly a hundred missions across twenty African countries at any given time. Wages secret limited scale operations, and you know they they're conducting 3,500 exercises of military engagements throughout Africa per year, an average of 10 per day, and so this is a uh, uh, unprecedented and uh, and it's definitely imperialism. It's, it's there to suck the resources out of Africa, and not to help Africa to the self determination and independence. And Africa must recognize that this must gain its self-determination independence by organizing independent of the European forces and American forces and create its own army and its own, own government. And, and this is uh, necessary and, and must be done if Africa is to be truly liberated. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Thank you, Palin. Thank you, Mr. Orion. Thank you, all the participants. We come to your closing. We ask our final uh, summation from our political analysts and the panelists today on today's themes and view of the past, present, future. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for tonight. My final thought for tonight is that we must intensify uh the political our political education 
and get in, and get organized and join a political party that is working for people's liberation. Thank you, Brother Hampton. Brother Jesus, for tonight. You talking to me? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I I I will concur. Uh, I will concur totally. Uh, you know, uh, we need we need institutions. Uh, uh, we need Pan African institutions. Uh, we need those things in terms of being truly whole. Because uh, without those, the ability to to actually think critically is compromised. And given the fact we talk about pervasive propaganda, us emanating throughout the West, then it's more important than ever that we be critical in terms of how we think. And above that, I'd like to just encourage the audience to unravel the matrix, and you have a good night, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Aki. And Brother Moses, your final thoughts for the night. Well, we have to definitely unravel the matrix. Uh, we have to see see the, what the reality of the situation is and, and get beyond the propaganda and, and uh, the ideological underpinnings of this imperialist system. We must we must study, 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 and turn ourselves into revolutionaries who are capable of carrying out revolution. And uh, you know we need to get organized. Thank you. We'd like to thank the panelists again. Thank everyone for listening to Africa on the Move. And we would like to acknowledge and we apologize for not bringing a recent report from Cuba, but we will work on. The logistical issues that we had today, and we hope to bring that report to you in the very, very near future. Until next time, we'd like to encourage everyone to please subscribe to Go Forward Whatever, Backwards Never, and remember, organization is the weapon for the press. We thank you for listening to Africa on the Move. Any comments or questions, please feel free to email us at AfricaOnTheMove2 at gmail.com. We hope to see you next week, same time, same station, same place. And remember, Africa's one, our destination's one, and together we will achieve Pan-Africanism. Until next time, let's move forward ever and backward ever. You have been listening to Africa on the... You have the emergence in human society of this thing that's called the state. What is the state? The state is this organized bureaucracy. It is the police department. It is the army, the navy. It is the prison system, the courts, and what have you. This is the state. It is a repressive organization. But the state... And people, well, you know, you've got to have the police, because if there were no police, look at what you'd be doing to yourselves. Know how we think, organize the hood under our chain banners. Red, black, and green instead of gang bandanas. FBI spying on us through the radio antennas. And I'm hitting cameras in the street like watching society. With no respect for the people's right to privacy. I take a slug for the cause like Huey P. While all you fake niggas try to copy Master P. I want to be free to live, able to have what I need to live. Bring the power back to the street where the people live. We sick of working for crumbs and filling up the prisons. Dying over money and relying.
rely on religion for help. We do for self like ants in a colony. Organize the wealth into a socialist economy. A way of life based off the common needs. And all my comrades is ready. We just spreading the seed. Shout out to black male. Live a third of his life in a jail cell. Cause the world is controlled by the white male. And the people don't never get justice. And the women don't never get respected. And the problems don't never get solved. And the jobs don't never pay enough. No more bondage, no more political monsters, no more secret space launches. Government departments started it in the projects, material objects, thousands up in the closets. Could have been invested in the future for my comrades. Battle contacts, primitive weapons out in combat. Many never come back, pretty niggas be running with gas. Rabbit get shot in they back, then fire back. We're tired of that, corporations hiring blacks. Denying the facts, exploiting us all over the map That's why I write the shit I write in my rap It's documented, I meant it Every day of the week, I live in it, breathe in it It's more than just fucking believing it I'm holding in ones, rolling up my sleeves and shit It's C-Lo for push-ups now, many headed for one conclusion Niggas ain't ready for revolution The average black male, live a third of his life in a jail cell Cause the world is controlled by the white male And the people don't never get justice and the women don't never get respected And the problems don't never get solved And the jobs don't never pay enough So the rent always be late Can you relate? We living in a police state That's his real name, Loki. Loki is not his real name, surprisingly enough. It's an important line there. I'm all about peace and love. Yeah. Okay. They're calling him a terrorist. Okay. One nation in the world has over a thousand military bases. Can you guess who? It's. Um, uh, let me give you a hint. Cutter. It is not Luxembourg. It's not just Muslims that that oppose your imperialism. He's going to tell you who it is. Lumumba was democracy, Mossadegh, Allende. There you go. Okay, so so this is the rapper. All right, that mm-hmm. is music. Bust a beat for me. Right? All right, sure. Glenn Beck is a racist. Got the strip was getting bomb. Obama didn't say shit. After you divorce yourself from the right wing propaganda campaign, it's all simple and plain. America could stand the game. Your president got an African name. Now who you gon' blame? When they dropped the bombs out of them planes, using depleted uranium, babies looking like two-headed aliens. Follow the money trail that leads to the criminal, and nothing subliminal to it. That's how they do it. See the game they run. Give a fuck who's cutting, articulate and hand. 
didn't rhyme, Obama didn't say shit. O-B-A-M-A, you ain't fooling everyone, I see the games you play. You VIP, I the B-I-C, and we know that's the code name for CIA. Hey, 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 the same way your cameras are watching, that's what watching you. Think we're easy to control, you ain't got a clue. Revolution's on the way, let's see what you're gonna do. You're gonna send the truth, you're gonna drop the news. See, it's not where you're from, it's where you're at. You're sitting in the white hat, so who cares if you're black?